Inside the Healing Room with Evangeline Hemrick. I have a very special guest for you today. Someone who has probably touched your life in some way. If you know anyone with an implant or medical device, or if you happen to have an implant or some kind of medical enhancement yourself, I am really excited to share this conversation with you with Professor David Williams. And before I get into reading his bio, which if I read the whole thing would take longer than the entire interview, (laughs) the entire podcast episode, um, I want to tell you why it was so important to me to share this conversation with you. Most of us massage therapists out there, we work with people with implants in their body all the time, whether it's a hip replacement or a new knee or a heart valve. David has had some part in the development of every medical device out there. And as we get into the conversation, you'll see why I find him to be so fascinating and so inspiring. He needs no introduction in the fields of biomaterials, medical devices, and tissue engineering. But for those of us in bodywork and healing arts, or just for everybody out there who at some point get some kind of replacement piece, or as we move into regenerative medicine, how our lives are also touched by the groundbreaking discoveries and technology and teaching that he shares. This is a person who has affected many, many lives around the planet and continues to. He's a scientist and an author, an innovative thinker, and a creative force for good in this world. So I'm going to read you a little bit of his bio, but I just wanted to share that with you from my heart, why it was so important for me to share this conversation with him, because he's my friend. We like to talk about science and shamanism and spirituality and medical devices and medical procedure and everything else in between. He has had 50 years of experience in the fields of biomaterials, medical devices, and tissue engineering. And he gained this experience during appointments at the University of Liverpool in the UK, and more recently, at various positions all around the world. During his career, he has published over 30 books in 420 papers. His book, Essential Biomaterial Science, was published by Cambridge University Press in June of 2014. He was editor-in-chief of Biomaterials, the world's leading journal in the field between 2000 and 2014. He has received major awards from the U.S., European, and Indian societies of biomaterials. And what I want to emphasize about Professor David Williams I want you to just let this land, just think about this a little bit with me. He began his career when there really wasn't a specialized career like physicians have today if they replace your hip or they go into that and they're specialized in that. He went into all this at a time when it was just being discovered. And what an adventure. I just think his life has been so fascinating because... He continued to say yes to opportunities. And talk about an out-of-the-box thinker. There was no box. 
starting in the field of metallurgy in Liverpool, when they were putting trying and putting metal implants in the body and working with the leading edge scientists, physicians, and engineers all around the planet to come up with ways to persuade the body to heal itself and to be more effective. That's his term that I love. And we talk about that when I asked him, I'm like, so basically like at this point with regenerative medicine, you're making body parts, right? And he was like, hmm, I like to think of it as persuading the body to heal itself. Another thing that David has been into and really excited about among many things is in Cape Town, along with Professor Peter Zilla, the current Chris Barnard Professor of Surgery, he has formed a company that will produce low-cost but high-technology medical devices that can be used with minimally invasive procedures to treat young adults in sub-Sahara Africa. These individuals are suffering from rheumatic heart disease and currently have no therapies available to them. So the amount of lives that David has touched with all of the technology that he's been able to be a part of, I just, I love the free thinker and adventurous soul. (laughs) And that's why it's so important for me to share his inspiration about saying yes, taking chances, and learning new things in life. And speaking of learning new things, we also get into David's poetry and creativity in this conversation because his latest poetry book, A Decade of Transition, a collection of the poems of David Williams, is also available on Amazon right now. So if you'd like to learn more about David or you want to experience his poetry, I might include one of my favorite poems of his in the show notes, and, and he's also going to share a poem in the episode. But you can contact him at williamsdavid44 at gmail.com. So it is my deep pleasure and honor to introduce my friend, Professor David Williams, to the show. Enjoy. David, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure, Angela. I've been wanting to do this for a very long time because I find the work that you do to be so fascinating. And we've become friends and and shared what different paths we've been down along the way. And I just thought it might be really interesting for my listeners to hear about your journey of regenerative medicine and what this path that you've gone down of, I remember one time I asked you, I said, so basically you're telling me you make body parts, right? I mean, you've, you've been on the cutting edge, leading edge technology with regenerative medicine. And I loved the answer that you gave me. You said, well, I like to look at it as persuading the body to heal itself. But for those out there that might be like, well, what exactly is regenerative medicine? And as a scientist and a professor, what exactly do you do, David? (laughs) Well, thank you. Yes, uh, I think I can say very clearly that um, we have a lot in common, but my my pathway has been very, very different to yours. I started off my professional life. uh, I studied uh, metallurgy back in the UK. Uh, as, a, as an engineering science subject. 
I, I had an undergraduate degree and then a PhD, and I was wondering what to what to do with that. I'm not saying very altruistically I want to help society, but I just wondered what was going to be helpful using that. So I went to listen to a lecture given by an orthopedic surgeon in Birmingham, that's Birmingham, UK, of course, uh, and he was talking about putting bits of metal in the body. Uh, this was just before the real days of joint replacements. This was bone fractures, straightening spines, and doing things like that. And uh, I asked him if there was a, any any role for a metallurgist or engineer in this field, and he said he didn't really think so, but he knew at the University of Liverpool, about 100 miles to the north, that they were looking for somebody to work in biomechanics, which is the if you like mechanical engineering of the body. So uh, I hadn't finished my PhD then. I was only about two years into that. So I went up to Liverpool, and they interviewed me there and then and gave me the job there and then. But they didn't have too many people interested. So and that was in uh, 1967, a long, long time ago. And that's when I started my real career uh, as an engineer in, in medicine. But, and this goes to the heart of your question, for the first let's say 30, 35 years there, I was doing work concerned with replacing the parts of the body. As you say, I don't like the word body part, but they were replacing parts of the body. And these were like hip replacements, like lenses in the eye, uh, dental implants, arteries, heart valves. Uh, and this has been good, and it's been the, the, the basis of my life. Except these can only replace a mechanical or physical function. They're not biological. I know this pretty well personally. I now have two hip replacements and one shoulder replacement myself and major spinal surgery. So I know what goes in the body and I know they, they do not interact biologically with the body. They are mechanical. They help us walk. Uh, with Some have electrodes like pacemakers. They help our electrical activity. They may let light into the eye, but they're not biological. And that's where the field I'm in now, um, although I still expand both regenerative medicine is concerned with using the body's own mechanisms to heal, if possible, or to build new tissue in the body. That's why we call it, uh, to regenerate. Now, with, with hips and knees, we're never going to get there. They're far too complex. Uh, but there are some diseases, some conditions, where we simply have no chance with just mechanical devices. For example, major spinal cord injury leading to paralysis. I can't put a bit of metal in the spine and hope it works. Our purpose is to try to stimulate the body to repair its own spinal cord. And we can do that. And we're still some ways off. I've done a lot of work in China with some really good scientists in this area. We can do that by taking stem cells, that's adult stem cells, and working with them, mixing them, if you like, with a material, that's my role, uh, and applying growth factors, applying nutrients, to try to persuade the body to regenerate its spinal cord. It's a difficult one. Here, um, uh, I, I came here to work in, uh, in Winter Salem now just over 10 years ago. I work with uh, Dr. Anthony Tala, who's one of the world's best in this area. He's a urologist, and he was the world's first to develop a, uh, a so-called tissue-injured bladder for, for young children. Uh, but it's difficult, and uh, I can't say we're, we're really there yet with most tissues and organs. We're a long way down the road, but um, we have somewhere to go. I, I'm sure your listeners would understand this, that uh, it is much better if you can regenerate that part of the body which is now diseased or injured. 
rather than replacing it with a mechanical device, which I have to say, even beside me, is going to fail at some point. So that, that's the purpose, the whole role of regenerative medicine. So fascinating to me as a body worker and therapist, and I'm sure therapists out there listening, we are always aware of replacements when we're working with a client on the table. And so to to try to grasp your career and your work, your life's work that you have had a part, some part in the creation, design, some contribution in just about every type of replacement part out there. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's pretty well correct, Angela. Uh, I started off in orthopedics in the in bones and joints. I spent a fair bit of time in dentistry with dental implants and and implants in the uh, in the maxilla and in the, in the face. I've worked in neurology. I've worked in in uh, in, the, in the nervous system. I've moved more and more towards cardiovascular devices. Uh, that is um, a replacement or regeneration of the cardiovascular system, the heart, the arteries, uh, and other ancillary tissues. But yes. Um, I've been able to work across that spectrum. It's an interesting point, and I, I think I've been somewhat fortunate here because I moved into the area, say, way back in the 1960s, and I was one of the first to do that. And then there were not too many constraints, and I was allowed, or perhaps I allowed myself to spread myself across all these clinical areas where my uh, experience and my um, sometimes intuition or knowledge would allow information from orthopedics to be used within the cardiovascular space uh, and, and so on. That's been very helpful. No one's starting off today in, in the broader area of biomedical engineering. Nobody would have that luxury because of the academic positions or industry positions or funding. They have to focus and they go a lot deeper than I did in those days and they will be a specialist in a pacemaker or a specialist in an intraocular lens or whatever and don't doesn't have that breadth. I've also worked across the range of materials. Uh, so I started off life as a, as a metallurgist. I work with polymers and ceramics and carbons and natural tissues, the engineered tissues to do what we want. So I was very lucky that being in the right place at the right time, but hopefully I've been able to um, maneuver myself across this space to be helpful in, 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 in several areas. And you were a trailblazer. I mean, there really wasn't the career that you've created it, it really didn't exist back when you were trial and error, trying different substances, like you said, for what works, what works for a replacement, and then that turning into this amazing field of regenerative medicine, correct? That, that, that is correct. And obviously, there are several factors involved in that. In that yes, it, there was some, um, some fortune in that and some good luck, but I think I'll try to say, say try to maneuver myself around that. One factor these days, obviously, with, with litigation and even some of the ethical issues, you've got to be very careful what you do. Although I believe I was always ethical, I did not have too many legal constraints about what I was doing. I, I worked a little bit with uh, we became Professor Sir John Charney, the inventor of a hip replacement. He did that about 30 miles away from Liverpool uh, where I was working. You know, several of his first patients died in the operating table. I won't go into detail now. That's pretty devastating. And he'd have been convicted, I think, if that happened now. Um, because he just didn't really know exactly what he was doing. He was brilliant. But some parts of it, he wasn't sure of. But then 
after a while, and uh, I gave him a little bit of help on that, and he was able to develop these hip replacements that, in fact, lasted much longer than the hip replacements today. He'll get 30 or 40 years. One of, one of the reasons for that is he, uh, his rationale was he would see, he worked uh, just outside Manchester, a lot of people from the uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire, countryside, especially uh, old ladies would come in who were having difficulty walking, sitting down because their hips are so so messed up with uh, osteoarthritis. And all he wanted to do was to operate on those so they could go home and move around the house in uh, without pain. And today we look at that, and uh, if you're in, with an orthopedic surgeon, if your if your patient isn't isn't an Olympic athlete within a year, you fail, so to speak. And we have a very different environment today. That's what John Charlie tried to do when he was unbelievably successful with that. And he didn't have lawyers uh, or regulators over his shoulder. That, that was a big factor. I'm not saying we have to go back to that, but that was a factor. And you've written several textbooks on the the topic as the topic grew. And as you learned, you would share that information with the academic world, correct? Yes, yes. I, I, I wrote the, my first book and the first book in this area in 1973, Implants in Surgery. That was an awful long time ago, well over four years. And uh, I've written and edited um, a lot of books since then. I, for a while, um, edited the, the world's major journal in, in, in this field. I did that for 15 years with Peggy, my wife, being the managing editor. And I have to say with that, uh, if you want to consider how much influence I've had, as editor-in-chief of that journal, which is called Biomaterials, I visited and gave seminars and workshops on how to write scientific papers and how to, to disseminate your science all over China, uh, in places like Nepal and Sri Lanka and uh, places all around Asia and some parts of Africa and so on. And that, I think, um, you, have, you ask people what Williams has done, they might say editing biomaterials was the biggest because he was able to disseminate and teach not just a science, but how to interpret the science and how to present that to uh, fellow scientists and indeed to the public. So that's been a very big part of my life, yes. And I'm very interested in your latest project because it fascinates me to think of you being on that leading edge of discovery with implants, with, like I love how you say, persuading the body and helping the body to do the best that it can. And now that you even have your own implants, how has your own journey been? Because the book that you're writing now, am I getting the title correct? Reconstructing the Body, Science and Spirituality? Correct. Yes. Uh, let me go back to a comment you made before about you and your, your colleagues and friends in your, in your um, sector um, when you talk about um, healing and healing tissues, and I'm talking initially about having bits of metal and plastic in the body, you have a big role to play there because uh, although the device I'm talking about, say mechanical or physical, they have to be accommodated correctly in the body. And that requires uh, the body to accept and work with whatever device is placed there. Uh, it's a, a very, very important part of, of my life and indeed Peggy's life in terms of of how we rehabilitate the body after major surgery, including placing uh, implants there. And you'll know there are so many different aspects of that. It's not just uh, laying a hand on the, on the back and moving up and down. There are so many different aspects 
of that healing process. And that's been, been a very, very important part. And so in thinking that over the last five years uh, and writing uh, a number of um, very detailed scientific papers, I realized there, there are many things we still don't know. And some things we thought we knew, but we don't. But sometimes you can go back in history and see that people actually knew more about that hundreds of years ago than we, we think we know now. And so the spiritual side of this, and I don't mean there in, in terms of deep religion, but this, this the spiritual side of that has, has become important. Yes, I'm, it's, um, it's a detailed book. It's fascinating, writing about, uh, about spirituality and how that influences, not directly my work, but how it influences the, the, the area in which I work. And that's, that's become very important. You have such a unique vantage point on the body and healing. And that's why I thought it might just be fascinating for, for healers, for people who are more on my side of the, the treatment table, <laughs> to, to get a glimpse into what your world is like and what you have found and, and what you've discovered and what at this point in your career you feel like about regenerative medicine and where, where we're going with it, where we've been, Anything, any thoughts on all of that that you want to share with those out there that love to learn about the intelligence of the body and the healing process that's just astounding? Yes, I think, um, let me first say that uh, when I talk about rehabilitation, it, it surprises me, but perhaps it shouldn't, that the vast number of people who have, let's just say, joint replacement or spinal surgery they're told what they have to do when they get home. And the vast majority of people simply do not do what they're told. Uh, I'm not saying that's spiritual, that's just common sense, but the spirituality does become a, a significant part of that. Uh, to me, you know, say I've had my major, my fair share of major surgery and uh, I get home and I just do what I'm told. We have Peggy telling me, we have a wonderful uh, physiotherapist in South Africa. And most of my surgery being done in South Africa, I believe and it's, it's not easy, it's difficult, and it's painful sometimes, but you have to do that. You, the patient, playing their part in this. And it has to be, a, uh, I'm sure you like me to say this, actually a very important team there uh, that's, that's been involved in that or, or doing that. In terms of um, where my experience is, let me, let me tell you what uh, I, I concentrate on right now. And I, I mentioned Africa. We spend a lot of time in Africa. We came back. It was right at the beginning of this pandemic. It was a, a very interesting journey getting out of Africa on the last day before they closed it down. I work with the current Chris Barr Professor of Surgery in Cape Town. For many of you readers who are much younger than me may not remember Chris Barnard. He was the guy who carried out the world's first heart transplant. It wasn't done in the US. It was done in Cape Town, South Africa. I, this is a long time ago. I, I maybe knew him. I met him. Uh, this was pretty profound. And then him, he and I were guest speakers at a, a conference in um, Belfast, Northern Ireland. And uh, he was towards the end of his life. He didn't have a very good end of his life. I won't go into that now. But, uh, he had a lot of rheumatoid arthritis. He, he, was, he could practice surgery after a while. So he became rather philosophical. Not necessarily the best way, I have to say. Um, but uh, tremendous experience in, in Northern Ireland on the coast, looking across towards Scotland, across the Irish Sea, uh, in County Hampshire, uh, there's a part of the coastline. It's called the Giant's Causeway, and there, there are huge rocks which uh, are crystallographic in structure. They are hexagonal, 
and it's a most magnificent sight. It's called the Giant's Causeway because the myths say that giants put their footprints down there to walk across to Scotland. And I've got this beautiful picture of Chris Barnard, the world's most famous surgeon, walking there, and me just walking behind him in the steps of the giant <laughs> on the court. Wow. And that, that was pretty, <laughs> that was interesting, profound. And I talked to Barnard about the difficulty he had with treating young black children in Africa. They have a disease there called rheumatic fever. We don't have in this country. And they die in the hundreds of thousands across sub-Saharan Africa and in some other parts of the developing world. And I had a nice conversation there. It would be nice to be able to regenerate their hearts. Uh, that would be the ultimate goal. That's a long way off. What we have done, I formed a company in South Africa, and chairman of the company raised a lot of money in Africa to develop this technology to treat these kids whose hearts are failing them. At the moment, they can only the only successful treatment is open heart surgery, which is pretty unavailable to the whole of Africa. Uh, we have a technology that's taken us 10 years to develop uh, where we don't need major surgery. We have a small incision in the chest. We go into the heart and repair or replace a valve, a valve which is no longer working. These kids uh, who get rheumatic fever, it's a step throat, but it's not treated because there's no doctors or antibiotics. They get a step throat, it affects the valves of the heart, and by the time they're in the late teens, 20s, they can't run, they can't work, and then they die. It's a tragedy. More kids are affected by this than HIV or malaria in the whole of Africa. So our technology is there. We've tried some part of the technology. We got permission in Africa to do that. We're waiting for our, our first, we call it first in man, we first in charge to replace a valve in a young rheumatic fever patient. And imagine this is the personal tragedy here. We got that permission after trying with the, the African equivalent of the FDA, two years of working with them, and quite rightly they were concerned. We got permission to do that at the end of last year. It's ready to go when this pandemic has closed down for, for, for a long time. And so kids will not be able to get that. All the right decisions there, but that's, that's where my, my own heart is in being able after 50 years in this field working on either replacement or regenerating tissues to be able to offer children in Africa the possibility of living past the age of 20 if our technology is successful in them. It's, it's not regenerative yet, this is still replacement. We replace, although we replace it with the tissue of a cow, I have to say, but then in all the right way. But uh, that to me is, is where I, towards the end of my professional career, not quite the end, but towards the end, uh, that's been, has been extremely rewarding. And uh, I've got a great picture of Chris Barnard holding up a three or four-year-old black child. Uh, Chris Barnard, this is the days of, uh, of apartheid in Africa, a very famous middle-aged white man holding up this three or four-year-old young baby who he was going to treat. And he did treat with a with open-heart surgery, which is almost impossible now. That's, that's the story towards the end of my professional life. And it's been a, that's been a, uh, a, a wonderful journey. And if, when maybe next year we're allowed to go and put these into patients, if, if they are successful, then I can say, well, I can now retire now, I've done it. Uh, I'm not quite there yet. When you first told me about this very serious problem that affects so many children and is so not talked about or understood in our culture, it really got me thinking about how you 
you live and integrate and learn and share in all these places around the world. And so many of our communities can be so isolated like a little bubble and you don't, you don't live like that. And I just would love for you to share with our listeners, what has travel taught you? Like, I remember you telling me about Ubuntu, the whole, the whole concept in South Africa and so much sharing, so much growing from travel. And what could you bring to someone who might be listening to this who hasn't gotten to experience these other parts of the world? Oh, that's a, that's a very good and very long question, Angela. Let me see how I can, <laughs> I can answer that. Because, yes, it's not just the travel. It's, it's um, what you see, what you do, what you hear when you are traveling. And uh, that's been exceptionally good for, for both of us in the last, maybe myself, in the, in the last 20 years. Uh, you mentioned Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a, is a, I'll call it a South African word. It's actually fairly similar both in, in Zulu and Hosa. And it, uh, it's difficult to, to translate directly into English. It's a little bit like, like the Welsh word, hirai, which means a, uh, a, a, not homesickness, but a longing for the spirit of home. And Ubuntu, I think it was Desmond Tutu, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and Nova Laureate, like this, that um, Ubuntu says that a person is not a person without other people. It's society. And this, this goes back to spirituality. Uh, and there, there, it is, a, it is a, a feeling, a concept, which is pervasive across uh, all of South Africa. Bear in mind that the white people are still in the minority, and there are 16 official languages in South Africa, and many different types of, many different so-called the tribes or groups there, and they interact through this, this spirit of Ubuntu. Peggy knows more about that. She's worked where we live in, just outside Cape Town. She's worked with communities there, uh, has a tremendous, they have a tremendous respect for her because she's learned what Ubuntu means in South Africa. She's done that better than I have. But we do that around the world. We, a number of years ago, we were in New Zealand uh, and uh, had a few days just to tour around the South Island, a beautiful, beautiful place. And we were taken into the home of some Maori people, the descendants of the original um, people who came from the uh, from Polynesia to New Zealand. And they were just so, so welcoming. And I don't know we'd find that in the UK, USA, or other parts of Europe. It was just a, a tremendous experience. We've had up in, up in the Himalayas. We've been up in Nepal and in the small country of Bhutan. Uh, I taught in, in, in schools in, in Nepal. In Bhutan, they were, we were one of the first Westerners to get in there. This is a long, long time ago now. And they hadn't, they had no phones, no television, but just their, the smile on their faces were just incredible. Same going into, into Cambodia, uh, along the Mekong River. The, the welcome and the smile you see on young children, uh, it, it is so powerful, uh, and, and, and so rewarding compared, I have to say, to what happens in the West, not any particular country, but, you know, it's not often you see to a stranger, uh, we could be very careful, obviously, but the children there just seem so welcoming and it, that, that is so rewarding. So yes, we, I think we've given, uh, but we've taken a lot from, uh, from cultures all around the world. Yeah. And just, just the fact that that's such a huge problem with those children, something that you're so passionate about helping to come up with some technology to save the lives of how many? I mean, how many children are we talking about lose their lives um, with this rheumatic fever a year? Uh, yes, it, uh, 
I think in the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, that's from sort of Nigeria downwards, there's probably 100,000. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a disease of poverty in the big townships outside Johannesburg and Nairobi and Lagos and Khartoum, and the kids stand a chance. So about 100,000. Now, obviously, with our technology in our hands in Cape Town, we won't be able to do that many. Um, but the whole point of our technology is we don't need open heart surgery. We don't need major imaging equipment. We just need to train the local surgeons, and they will spread out that way. So that's a large number. Okay. Well, I love how you're so passionate about bringing awareness to these problems for these children. And it also makes me want to talk about something you were saying in the Reconstructing the Body, the science and spirituality book that you're working on, the ethical side of regenerative medicine. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, it's a, it's a big subject. And uh, I suspect it hasn't had as much attention as it deserves. There are many ethical issues uh, in regenerative medicine, obviously in medicine in general, but in regenerative medicine. And I've been thinking about that for some time. And in this book, Reconstructing Body, Science and Spirituality, I try to emphasize some of the, the ethical issues. Uh, just let me be clear here, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but I have a, a very clear distinction between morals and ethics. Morals are all about whether you follow rules or not. Ethics are those areas where there's no right answer. And no one side is necessarily right or wrong. It's how we deal with subjects there. And it goes back to abortion and uh, using fetal uh, stem cells and so on. So I, I've become in, uh, interested in that for some time. And uh, I have one story I can give you there which, um, uh, which demonstrates this. Uh, when I was back in, in Liverpool, and I was there for 40 years, I became a, a scientific advisor to the European Commission. That's the body that uh, generates the legal framework of, of the European Union. And uh, they had the responsibility of developing regulation and laws for regenerative medicine. And uh, I was advising them on terminology and science, and we're doing pretty well. And then I got a call uh, from somebody quite high up in the commission saying, Maybe we have a difficulty here. We need your help. We can't tell you what it is, but some part uh, of the, uh, uh, the European Parliament is trying to block this legislation. Um, and we need you to write to members of Parliament, that's the current of, uh, members of Congress, to explain that if this law does not get through, there will be no regenerative medicine in Europe. So if ever we have a treatment for Parkinson's or macular degeneration or whatever, Europe will not be able to partake. So I wrote a letter to all members of the European Parliament. And I got a lovely response. It was very good, and they understood. Um, and I thought we were moving ahead. And then I got a, another call from somebody even higher up in the commission saying, David, uh, we still have a problem. I can't speak to you on the phone about this. I would like you to come into, uh, uh, into the commission, but don't come in the front, any of the front doors. Just come in the, in the back way. We'll tell you how to get there. I was met at the side door. I went in and had a meeting with a very small number of people, and they said, the issue is this. This has been blocked by the Vatican. So I said, oh, I thought we dealt with that. They're on about embryonic stem cells. No, no, it's not that. It is the commercialization of the human body. The Vatican believes that if there is any process here in gender medicine which involves commerce, i.e. somebody 
or some organization buying cells, buying tissue uh, in normal routine commercial practice, they, they will stop it. Uh, so I, I, I left the building up to that same back door and uh, I called Peggy, my wife, who we were, she was living in Brussels, I was there quite a lot. And uh, Andrew, you know this, that uh, Peggy is, uh, her name is Peggy O'Donnell, she's Irish by background and a Catholic. And uh, I came out on the phone and said, Peggy, it's me against the Vatican, what shall I do? <laughs> you, you, you go for it, you know what you're doing, go for it. So I did, and the Vatican backed down, and now we have regulation in Europe. Um, and that was a, that to me was a, a part of spirituality. It amazes me sometimes the laws around the world, including here in the US, which allows for commercialization of tissues taken from patients who didn't know the tissue had been taken from them. They never gave permission. They got no uh, reward for it. We had the company goes on to make tens of millions of dollars by processing that tissue and selling it. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm not saying it's right either. That's what I mean by ethics. And in my book, I discuss that at, at great length and discuss, actually, Angela, who owns your body? Oh, it's a wow. very, very deep question. And when you look at that, when I talk about spirituality, I'm not necessarily talking about religions, but all religions have some view on that one. And ultimately, across the world, you'll find that most groups, most organizations will say that you do not own your own body. God owns your body, but God gave you permission to do what you wanted it. And that's, I think, pretty profound. And that's where a lot of my spiritual thinking goes in terms of how we handle uh, human bodies. And so I'm very excited to read this book because that's a conversation that I would so enjoy having with you about where where your edge has been as you've learned and had all of these newfound experiences all along the way that I'm sure has tested that line of where do you draw the line? How do you feel about that question? I, I would love to know who owns your body. How do you feel about that? I, I think the position I just explained, which is a distillation of uh, many other uh, positions, I think is is correct. I would like to think I have the right to do what I want with my body, but that doesn't mean necessarily mean to say that the body is absolutely mine. You know, I, I say I, I don't get into religion here. I'm not talking about the existence of God or whatever, but it does seem to me that there is uh, some other component out there which has ultimate control, and we are simply a part of a system in which we temporarily control what our body does, but it's temporary. Yes. And that's why I love having these conversations with you, because it's, it's, it's fun for a scientist and a shaman to, <laughs> to come together and, and share. And that's exactly what I wanted to do this for, because I appreciate your perspective. And the work that you've been doing and what you have to share with the world. Now, back to this book, you, you also told me with this book, Reconstructing the Body, Science and Spirituality, you mentioned that you're thinking about including and art, like an art component in this. Tell us about that. Obviously, there are many different forms of art. And I think it's helpful in the book to sometimes use, I'll say graphics, but I, I really do mean 
high-quality art to demonstrate what people were thinking. If you look back to some of the early attempts at transplantation, and I don't mean in the last 50 years, I mean hundreds of years when a surgeon in Italy was trying to transplant a leg from a donor. Uh, and of course, it didn't really work, but some of the paintings of that are just outstanding, including the fact that the, the, the surgeon was white, the patient who needed a new leg was white, but the donor was black from Africa. And I think those pictures actually uh, are a valuable addition to looking at uh, both the science and spirituality. Probably more, um, uh, I am including uh, a fair amount of poetry, uh, some some poetry from well-known poets, but mostly poems I'm writing for the book. And I class that more as art than either science or spirituality. That's probably where I think at the heart of that. And poetry seems like such such a different space to be in than the research and and your your scientific background. So have you always loved poetry or how did that desire to write your own poetry, how did that start for you? No, I've not always loved poetry. Being being Welsh, I was cognizant Welsh and Celtic, I was cognizant of the of the poetry of the great Irish Yeats and the Welsh Dylan Thomas and so on, uh, but never aspired to write it until about 12, 15 years ago. And uh, it came to me that um, I write an awful lot, and I write science, I write legal opinions and so on, and they have to be factually correct. If, I am, if I'm not correct, A, I can be sued if it's a legal opinion, or I, I, I teach the wrong thing to students. So I am meticulous when I'm writing my scientific work that I, I check everything I write and double check. That's as it should be, but it's a little bit tedious. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice sometimes to write where nobody can check your facts? Nobody can say they'll believe you. And the way for that is, you could do it in a novel, I guess, but the way for that to me was poetry. And people can say, I don't like your poems, but they can't say you're wrong. Right. And that gave me a, an, another outlet. And uh, for, uh, for 10 years, uh, when we were traveling, I would write poems uh, from all over the world. And I put these together in a, in a, a, a small booklet, which we published in Cape Town uh, years ago. And it was called uh, A Decade in Transition, where I was transitioning from being purely or from purely scientific writing to poetic writing. And there are, there are what, about 60 or 70 poems in, in that book. These are, sometimes they are, sometimes they're political. They're usually uh, a social discourse. Rarely are they personal. Very rarely do I write personal, you know, about myself or love or whatever. Um, these are my reflections. But I've carried on doing that now uh, in, in, in recent years. And I've, I've got several other projects, which, um, which is nice in these days of, um, uh, being locked down here. Um, one of which I shall finish today uh, is called Sonnets in Isolation. Sonnets are poems um, favored by Shakespeare. They're very, very difficult to write. They have, they're 14 lines long. And they have to have a very rigid sequence of rhymes and syllables and so on. And uh, I've been writing more as one a day in, in this period of lockdown uh, called Sonnets in Isolation. Uh, I'm I've got, I think it's not every day, but I think about 24 poems in there. And uh, I will finish that today. And, and if anybody wants a copy of that, I'll be more than happy if you get to my email afterwards uh, to send anybody that. That's been a very, very interesting challenge, how people feel when they're in isolation. 
And then just going back um, uh, to to medicine, I mentioned uh, my experience with Chris Barnard, the heart surgeon from Cape Town. In, a, in another book I'm writing, I, I wrote a sonnet about Barnard, about his work in South Africa. And that got my first ever sonnet. It took me a week to write. And when I finished, I thought, oh, I, you know, I'm quite happy with that. So uh, I'm getting close to finishing another short book of poetry, which is the history of medicine in sonnets, taking all of the, well, most of the major events in the history of medicine, and with a little backstory, writing a sonnet about that event, whether it's the uh, invention of a smallpox vaccine or Chinese hip replacement, uh, or things like that. So I, I'm, I'm, that's mixing poetry and science, and perhaps that's where I should be aiming use poetry to uh, to be able to um, demonstrate and articulate science and medicine. I love that so much because here you are, world-renowned with the work that you do, highly intellectual, and you've come into this very free creative space that it seems like, and you can tell me if I'm right because this has been my observation of you and your creative process with your poetry, it seems healing for you. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair way of putting it. I'm, I'm very happy I've taken this um, this pathway. It's not, not like Robert Frost where you have a fork in the road. It wasn't quite like that. Um, but it's an additional pathway along one of the major forks I have, uh, I have followed. Yes, yes. And, and what's been your process? I mean, here you were starting at the beginning, you know, back to beginner's mind, which I always love to talk about that link between creativity and healing, getting back in that fresh space of like, it was something that it was something for you to begin and start. How, how was that? And how has it been if someone's out there like, oh, I can't be creative. You know, I could never, I could never write a poem. What do you have to say that might inspire someone out there about how did you do it? What was your process like? A good but very very difficult question for me, Angela. Because I, I have no, uh, I have no solution here. I have never learned creative writing. In fact, I, I personally think the concept of learning or teaching creative writing is a, is a little difficult. I'm not saying you either have it or you don't, um, but I, I find it very difficult to articulate to anybody what my thought process was in writing any any particular poem. It, to start with, um, my poems would take a long, long time to write, and I go back and change things. You still have to do that, both in terms of the, 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 uh, the I call it the grammar, the way in which it's uh, phrased. I'll, I'll uh, give you a little quote here. Here in the United States, you can forgive me for saying this, uh, that I don't like a lot of American poetry, even the major ones, primarily because it doesn't follow, most poems don't follow what I believe is the standard, I'll call it the Celtic or European uh, model for writing. Uh, and as someone said once that, and, and some people are, are now writing what they call prose poetry, because a lot of poetry here is without without structure. It's like reading a, a several sentences together without the intonation, without the syntax, and if you like, without the emotion. A lot of American poetry, to me, is not very emotional. So I go back to Say, listening to Yeats, James Joyce, Dylan Thomas, you can feel the emotion. If I read out something from Dylan Thomas, on the Wood, for example, if I read that, I can put a lot of emotion in that just by the way in which my voice 
is raising and lowering, knowing what Dylan was trying to do there. Uh, and somebody put it like this, that um, prose is writing with the best words. Poetry is writing with the best words in the right place. Oh, and I, that's, okay. that's, that's what, to me, I say this is my Celtic view, not North American view. And I'm, I'm sure not, not all your listeners will um, agree with me on that one. And it's an interesting uh, dialogue to have. But I write, and why sonnets have been so interesting, you have to, in that, uh, you have to ignore a few grammatical things because you simply can't get what you want to do in 10 syllables in the line. And so sometimes uh, my verb and noun are transposed uh, in ways you have to think, what the hell did he say there? But then you look at it carefully, ah, I know what he said then. So to me, poetry is as much in the reading out loud as the writing. And if I was to say to anybody who's thinking of writing poetry, write something, scribble it down, and then read out loud to yourself. One of the ways we've done that here with um, here in in in, uh, in Winston Salem, we have some poetry. Uh, even I think you came to one once, Angela. Uh, and sometimes in there, we invite some younger people, not poets by profession, but people who write poetry, and uh, give them a chance to read their poetry. And it works. Here's a very interesting example. Last summer, Peggy and I were. Here in Winter Salem, Peggy had gone to a store. I was in a coffee bar over the road. And I was sat there, and there was a stool next to me, and a young guy came, and very polite, uh, very polite, and he said, sir, is anybody sitting on this chair? I said, no, go ahead. And he goes, he got his um, little notebook out, briefcase out, and he brought out a book by Goethe. He, wasn't, <laughs> he didn't bring a device with a plane, so he had a book by Goethe, and we started talking. And uh, he said, Casey writes poetry. So I said, um, well, we are actually having a poetry reading next Monday. You'll be very welcome to come to our house. And he looked a bit shy. And I said, you, you can read something if you like. I said, I couldn't do that. I said, well, let me tell you something here. In all my life, uh, going back in all my profession, if I've been given a chance, I always say yes. I may regret it, but I always say yes. So here's your chance. His name was Luke. Come along and read us a poem. And he went away. I didn't think I'd see him again, but he came, smartly dressed, and he read his poem. And uh, he read it out loud, and it was well received. He didn't know what it was going to be. But that to me is, is very important to get the right diction in the right environment and speak to your audience, even if it's on yourself. Well, let me ask you would you like to close out with reading and sharing one of your works with us? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, you've heard a few of mine. I can either do a fairly short one or, or one which, uh, most of my poems, when I wrote that book, Decade in Transition, at the end of each poem, I put when I wrote it and where I was when I wrote it. And that seems to put things in context. I do usually have one or two lines at the beginning saying roughly what the context was. So let me, let me read you a, a poem. It's sort of, it's, it's very sincere. It's, it's not too deep. But last summer, I had traveled to Ireland. Uh, and uh, I flew on Air Lingus from Chicago to Dublin, and I had the thought of a poem, so I, I scribbled things down. And then the next day, um, I finished the meeting. I was there for I'm an advisor to the National University of Ireland in Galway, which is pretty, pretty serious stuff. And I finished that, and then I was in a bar in, in, in Dublin, and so I, I finished off the poem there. And uh, it, uh, 
Suppose I can't remember growing old. It's about five verses long, so let me read that. The clocks and calendars tell me that many years have gone by since I saw my first snow at the age of three. As we moved back to Wales with a beautiful sigh, the war over, we thought we were free, not to know that memories will fly. I remember clearly the passions of the young and of learning, the overball and music on the valleys. Those are never forgotten, but are sung in my heart, rehearsed daily. I do sometimes betray a name or place, but with thousands of those stored in grey matter, I can easily conjure an answer to save face as the maturing wine replenishes the decanter. Live each moment and park it someplace, not to forget, but not to rely on. A goal is scored, a mountain climb so rare, awards here and there, pride tragedy upon you settles, and then makes your cupboard bare. Moving forward, memories suddenly gone. So, after more than my three score years and ten, I challenge my brain to remember when I last walked that country glen, seeing John Peel, you not ken, following the hunt over field and fen, taking the trout in the river Ivan, and writing my poems with a feather pen. All of a sudden, my life was Yuan and Zen. On Table Mountain, the few years back, chasing Venus round the old wine rack, with the signs coming from my aching back, saying I should have noticed the almanac. Slow down, take an easy track, forget the gelding, just go with the yak. No, I've been happy to let my life unfold and not remember growing old. Oh, thank you so much, David. I'm so inspired by your poetry, and I'll definitely put links in the show notes so people can find if they want to learn more about you, if they want to experience your poetry. And let's leave with telling them, what's the name of the new... Um, so there is one poetry book already out that they can find, right? Yes, uh, Decade in Transition. And you, actually, you can actually find that on Amazon. Excellent. Decade in Transition. Well, to be continued forever. So many things I, I wish to explore and talk about with you, but I'm so honored to have you on the show. Thank you, David. It's been my pleasure, Angela. Thank you very much for listening to me.